Romans chapter 9, we're going to look at God's sovereignty this morning. And I think in light of where Paul has taken us thus far in the book of Romans, you guys remember? Let's look back just at the end of chapter 8 together because like, wow. <laughs> okay, Paul, this is about as good as it gets. He said, yet all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That is rad. That's about as good as it gets. What is going to keep us from the love of our Savior? Nothing, okay? So where does Paul go now? What is he going to say next in light of this? Well, he talks about the nation of Israel for the next three chapters. How does that work? How does that fit? Well, I'm glad you guys asked because we're going to consider why the interruption. How many of you guys are familiar with this game, the game of life? My family loves this game. I can't stand it personally, but they play it all the time. And you guys remember the first space there? There's a Y. <laughs> in the road. You got to make a decision right off of the bat of what you're going to do in this game. How is it going to work out in the game of life? Well, if you go left, you start five spaces, right? And there you start business, you start work right away, you start making money. Or you can go to the right in 13 spaces because you chose to go to college, get an education first before you go start making money. So you'd think that Paul would have hurried the game, okay, and just went left. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, and jump right to what we find in chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. In light of him loving you this way, be a living sacrifice for him, right? Isn't that logical? Isn't that what we think would fit the best? But no. An interruption, and I am so glad that Paul put this here. He chose to start college, the longer road, but there is a purpose there for us. Now, this is not an interruption. It's an illustration that we all need to grasp as believers this morning. So, this is really regarding God's sovereignty and his providence. How many of you guys are thankful that God's sovereign, that he's in control and on the throne Absolutely. Now, chapters 9, 10, and 11 all come around Israel. And that's why we've taken a few weeks just to look biblically and consider what the Bible says. If it, if it contains five, six of the Bible, something about Israel or the Jewish people directly or indirectly, it's pretty important that we understand that. Even the Apostle Paul, who was called to do ministry, a missionary to the Gentile world, still understands the importance of Israel biblically and especially in regards to who God is, his sovereignty, his character, and how important that is for us even as Gentiles. So if you look up here, guys, you'll see what we're looking at this morning. We're going to get through all of chapter 9, Lord willing, okay? And that really speaks to God's past election of Israel. Chapter 10, we're going to look at Israel's present rejection, and then when we get to chapter 11, it'll be Israel's future reception. So that's a very simple way to outline these three chapters. And he'll prove that God has dealt with them righteously, 
That's what Paul is trying to help us to see, to grasp, to understand. And also, he has not failed in working out his divine purposes. So let's take a look at verse 1 together. We see here nine spiritual advantages of God's sovereignty, okay, his sovereign selection. Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Wow. Don't miss, guys, what Paul is saying here. I have great sorrow and I have continued grief in my heart. Guys, Paul's emotions here have accompanied his theology. Oh, we can learn much. We can grasp the Bible. We can know the truth. But has it touched our hearts, our lives? Are we living it out or are we just hearers of the word and not doers? Paul believed this, especially on this topic. Paul affirms here, guys, that theology isn't supposed to be, you know, just fill the head, but it needs to be feeding our hearts. That's why we prayed this morning. God, open our hearts to your word. Change us. That's where real fruit comes from. And check out verse 3 here, guys. This is, you know, he, he, he stood ready to forfeit his own Hope is own salvation, okay? If Christ would save his countrymen. Look at verse 3. I could wish myself to be a curse. That means literally be damned to hell, okay? Apart from salvation, from Jesus completely. I would give up my salvation, be a curse from Christ for who? My brethren. And who was Paul? He was a Jew. For Israel, my Jewish brothers and sisters, my countrymen according to the flesh. So love doesn't go deeper than this, does it? Have you ever had a heart in that way? A loved one? Man, I pray, Lord, open their eyes. Let them see. God, that they would seek you and find you and know you to be forgiven of their sins. Man, I'd give up my salvation if you would save them. Where does that type of heart come from? Wasn't Jesus willing to lay down his life? to die that others may live? That's just following our God. It's being like him. It's following Jesus, right? And then we look at verses 4 and 5, okay? He, he lists nine advantages. Did you guys catch those? Um, that even, it makes their rejection worse. Israel rejected their own Messiah that they'd been looking for, hoping would come to set them free. And he came and they rejected him. It says in verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, right? We've been studying Genesis. God chose them. The glory. They were given the covenants. The giving of the law through Moses to them. They were called to serve God. They were given precious promises 
of whom are the fathers and of from whom, according to the flesh, Jesus came, the Messiah came, Yeshua, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Yet with all these advantages and special blessings as a people, they still didn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Wow. Aren't you guys glad that we live in a Christian nation and we acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah of the world? Wow. We've been given much, guys. Show of hands. How many of you guys like Christmas as your most favorite holiday of the year? Most of you guys. At least half of you guys. Right? Think about it. Christmas. Christ! Miss! Coolest holiday of the year. And yet, we don't want Christ in it. Right? We don't want to acknowledge him. Definitely not going to let his word into our schools. We're definitely going to be canceled if we speak up on behalf of Jesus and declare what he says to be right and wrong. I don't think we're a Christian nation anymore, to be honest, guys. But I know there's a lot of Christians in this nation. I know he's called us to be salt and light. So love your neighbors well. Shine brightly. Share the good news of Jesus. Because this world doesn't get it. Most Americans I've spoken with, they don't know the gospel. They don't understand how to get to heaven, though they live in a Christian nation. So are we much different than, say, the Israelites? In a lot of ways, we are. But this made me think of how blessed we have been, the foundation we have in this country. You know, as there's a church right up the road there. I see the tower. How many churches we have in this little valley of ours? Hundreds. And yet, so many people that don't know. They have all the advantages. Well, I don't know what the gospel is. <laughs> Google, what's the gospel? What? I can read what Jesus did? That God became a man and died for me? That my sins could be forgiven? There's hope? There's eternal life? It's really that easy. If you're watching at home, Google the gospel. Okay. It's right there. We have all the advantages, but yet we do everything to put God at arm's length. We don't want to deal with you. We don't really want to think with you. That's why a lot of people don't come to church, you know, because I know if I do go, I'm going to be confronted with truth. They're going to be worshiping Jesus. Pastor's going to be preaching about Jesus. I don't want to deal with Jesus. And we all have excuses, guys. And the same thing with the children of Israel. They had their excuses though all these advantages, not to acknowledge Jesus. Which brings us to five personal examples in this chapter, and I want to get through all of them this morning with you guys, of God's sovereign selection. So let's take, at the, let's take a look at the first one here. We're going to look at the example of Ishmael. 
and Isaac. And we're very familiar with these two guys because we've been studying Genesis. Isn't it been really cool how Romans and Genesis have been overlapping this last year? It's so rad. Anyways, <laughs> let's look at verse 6. But it is not that the word of God is not taken effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Well, what does he mean by that? I'm going to pause just for a second. Israel means governed by God. Okay, just because you're an Israelite or a Jew, are you really governed by God? Just because you say you're a Christian, because you live in a Christian nation, and maybe mom and dad dragged your butt to church growing up, guess what? That doesn't make you a Christian. You aren't really governed by God. Do you understand that? We can give lip service. Oh, Jesus is my Lord. But Jesus is going to say to a whole lot of people one day, hey, you may call me Lord, Lord, but I don't know you. You really aren't a follower of mine. Depart from me. And that's the same thing with Israel, guys. Not all Jews are truly Israel, governed by God. Look at verse 7. He goes on to say, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are children of the flesh. These are not children of God, but they are children of the promise, are counted as a seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father, father Isaac. So God chose Isaac. You guys remember? And Abraham's son through Sarah. And then he was chosen over Ishmael. And that was Abraham's son through Hagar. So Israel's rejection of Christ didn't ruin God's plan. It went to the Gentiles, guys. That's been God's plan all along. Genesis 12. Through you, Abraham, your seed, the Messiah shall come, and he will be a blessing just to the Jewish people. Is that what we read in the scripture? No, to all nations, all peoples, Jew and Gentiles, right? God's plan all along. So God's word wasn't intended for all who boasted of their racial, you know, being racially, uh, racially descendants of Abraham because no Jew considered Ishlamites to be the children of God's promise to Abraham. Yet, he was as much a son as Abraham as was Isaac, guys. So they had mistaken their ethnicity for spiritual favor. Big mistake. God is not a respecter of persons. Let's look at the second example that we see here in verse 11. For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated so God's choice of Jacob over Esau, wow. Much has been written on this. Much is debated over this. How can God love one and hate another? Let's consider this for a second. Both these sons had the same father, right? Right. Both had the same mother. Both were brothers, okay? They were not just brothers, but they were twins. They were womb mates, 
<laughs> guys like that? Yeah! I need laugh. Anyways, <laughs> verse 11. God chose the younger twin. That's what we're told here. He chose Jacob. He also chose him before they were even born. It wasn't based on their works of doing right or wrong. Okay, It was for the purpose of God, his election, his calling, his deal. Well, what about this hate part? <laughs> Does God really hate Esau? What's going on here? Well, maybe what is meant is the Hebrew idiom, I prefer Jacob to Esau, or did he mean that he actually loathed him? Well, God's love for Jacob was revealed in his choice of Jacob, and God's hatred for Esau was seen in his rejection of Esau for the line of the promise of the Messiah. Okay, So again, this is speaking actually nationally. I've chosen Israel. This will be the people in whom the Messiah shall come. So hatred in the sense, in this sense, is not absolute, but it's relative to a higher choice. It makes me think of scriptures like we find in Luke chapter 14, 26, where Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, he can't be my disciple. Is Jesus saying that we have to hate our mom and dads? No. What he's saying is, hey, I need to be number one. I, become, I come before your parents. And yes, you honor mom and dad. I'm God, and that's what I've told you in my big ten commandments, <laughs> okay, that you may have long life, you honor them. But hey, I'm number one. That is what he's declaring. None other above me, not even your parents. Because don't we want to please our parents? Don't we want to honor them? Yeah. But Jesus is saying, hey, me more so. I'm your God. You follow me. You obey me. We also find another one in John 12, 25. It says, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will hate it for eternal life. So we come to scriptures like this. They're more relative. Do you guys get that? Than an absolute. And I think it's good to understand that when we look at this scripture concerning Esau and Jacob. So what do we do with this doctrine then? Predestination. Okay, some say, why argue it? Okay, people have been debating this forever. Others say, hey, it just gets everybody fired up. All they're going to do is argue. And yeah, I'm in some of those groups online that actually have discussions and debate about it. And some of it is just, oh boy, it's ridiculous. People get so fired up and unreasonable, unlogical. But anyways, some say, hey, we look at this and we just see that God's unfair. He's a narcissist. This doesn't make sense. It doesn't because that's not the character of God. Okay? Others look at this and says, hey, it hampers personal responsibility and evangelism. Doesn't it remove human free will, freedom, and make us all just a bunch of puppets, little bitty robots in this comic, you know, cosmic show going on? I say, you know, let's not dismiss it. Let's explore it. It's hearing God's word for a reason. I get excited about these chapters. They're very simple for me, okay, because I believe God is literal. I believe what he says in his word. I don't have to twist scripture. I don't have to make my presuppositions fit. God is just right. Do you guys know that? That's what I love about this. 
Um, so we're going to explore it. And you guys might just find as we dive into this that these are some of the most comforting scriptures, truths for us as Christians. Aren't you guys glad that you've been chosen by God? Absolutely. Aren't you glad that God loves you? Absolutely. Spurgeon said this. He was asked, you know, about how to reconcile sovereignty and man's human responsibility. And he said, I never try to reconcile friends. I love the wisdom that he shared there. He didn't say it's one or the other. What he was saying, hey, both are there in God's word. We deal with both of them. We have today a lot of different camps within Christendom. When it comes to this debate of sovereignty, we have people saying you have to be an Arminianist or you have to be a Calvinist. Some of you guys are, what are those? God bless you. Stay in that place. It doesn't really matter. (laughs) What matters is what God says. But the problem is we have people who say, hey, I'm I'm a Calvinist. Calvinism is the gospel. God chooses, period. He hates some people. He's created some people for hell, period. And he chooses some to be in heaven with him, period. Okay? You have to ignore a lot of scripture to continue to hold to that theology. That's dangerous. Because the Bible does talk about God choosing, right? We're reading this this morning. It's here in God's word. We got to deal with it. But at the same time, guys, we can't ignore the other scriptures because there's another camp out there of these Arminianists that we're pretty good people and we can actually seek God and choose him and find him. And there are scriptures to back that up. But on the flip side, guys, we have a lot of scriptures that talk about our depravity, okay? That there is a work of God's spirit in our lives. There is a grace, okay? Titus 2.11, that has appeared to all men, but it's a working of God, and our salvation is based on what we do and don't do. And that gets scary, because you can be in with the Lord and saved one moment, and then you can blow it as an Arminius, and you can be unsaved one day, and then you can repent and be saved again. That's unscriptural too, guys. Either you're a child of God or you're not. God doesn't adopt you into his family, save you to unsave you. Eternal security is pretty clear in scripture. So I look at these two camps and what I've seen my entire life, though there's so much debate and fighting going on with these two groups, I'm like, you guys need to repent. Our God, and yes, they are brothers and sisters, though they will break fellowship with each other. They believe on Jesus Christ. They are saved. That's what the Bible teaches us. Okay? And there's some very smart brothers and sisters in these camps who really make some strong arguments for their point of view. But what every single one of them have to do is ignore parts of the Bible. And we will not do that here at Freedom Fellowship, guys. We will stand upon the whole of God's word. And if God teaches us that we have responsibility, which how many guys have read quite a few scriptures in the Bible that we have responsibility, Right? Yeah, all over the place. How many of you guys have read a whole bunch of scriptures about God's sovereignty, that he's in control? Well, they're both there, guys. We're not going to ignore one over the other. Amen? We're going to take the word of God. So there may be some mornings I've had people say, hey, pastor, you sounded like a Calvinist this morning. 
Well, praise God. If we're talking about God's sovereignty, because that's where we're at in the word of God, praise the Lord, but I'm not a Calvinist because I believe God so loved the world. That means everyone, guys. That's the gospel, that whoever believes in him, that's next time we get into Genesis, or I mean Romans chapter 10, we're going to get into that. But the point is, guys, there's a lot of debate around there. A guy by the name of Augustine said that we must pray as though it all depends on God and work as though it all depends on us. So there is a partnership there, isn't there? Okay? God asks us to be obedient, right? Be holy as I am holy. (laughs) We want to strive for those things. As your pastor, I want to encourage you guys to walk in the ways of the Lord, to follow him closely, to be doer of his word, okay? But that's our choice, isn't it? We know it's what God has, but God also is working with us in that, and he will give us of his spirit, and he will do things in our lives for those things to happen. There's a partnership which we're going to dive into a little bit but people come to this doctrine and there's a lot of people that gnash their teeth at it okay so do you seek to call paul or maybe me bad names because of what we believe like hey we're just going to trust the word of god (laughs) this is what he says we're not going to ignore any part of it okay or can you trust that jesus is god that he is supreme i do i hope you do but wait can you imagine it any other way. I mean, really, think about this, guys. Okay, if you wanted to go at your own, okay, it's all about me. It's not about God. Don't need him in this partnership. That's a scary place to be, guys. Okay? We praise him, that he is in control, that he is sovereign, okay? Because that best man win mentality, that's scary. That's prideful. It's evil. Anyways, unbiblical. This brings us to another example, the example of Pharaoh, okay? Let's take a look here at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if, wanting to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared before for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Unfair! Unjust! 
What does he tell us in verse 14, guys? Certainly not. Not at all. He explains this. A lot of people to hold to their views will grab scriptures from this chapter and camp on this chapter to make their points. And their points on either side are, guys, we need the context. (laughs) What is it all saying? What is the big picture? What is the whole point that Paul's making here? He's laying this down. He's giving us these examples that we would have understanding and we don't want to miss what God is making very clear here for you and I. You see, Paul did not feel that God's sovereignty in any way destroyed man's responsibility. The God who ordained the end, saving the lost, also ordains the means to that end. Okay? There are prayers. There are witness of his people. Okay? He is at work, and they go together. Okay? Jesus has gone to the Father. Why? That he might send the Holy Spirit, the helper. And you will be endowed with power from on high to what? To go to be witnesses. There is a working together, guys. So, in election of man, electing man, God somehow is able to do without compromising his own righteousness and giving man, they're not going to have any grounds for complaints, okay? You can't complain. Some people want to make complaints. I've seen people who bought into Calvinist type of thinking, and they've walked away from the Lord. Well, if I don't have a choice, if God's just picking and choosing anyways, who cares? It is just what it is. If I believe, it's not me. It's not my, it's just going to be what it's going to be. My heart is grieved. It's not just a person. I've seen this happen over and over again. You see, guys, we'll look at verse 16, okay? We see here Paul really laying out it's not the exercise of man's will, okay, or his striving that compels God to withhold his judgment. But what is it? It's his mercy, isn't it, guys? That's what we have to grasp here. This is what we need to understand. His mercy So God is not obligated to save anyone, okay? We deserve to be condemned. Any of you guys without sin? Okay, I've blown it today, I'll be honest. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. If God is just, and don't we want a just God? He's declared to be just, and I'm thankful, okay? Because let me tell you what, I've I've spent a lot of time in, in, in a courtroom, okay, on behalf of some brothers and sisters who've done some things, and let me tell you what, I'm thankful that the judges are being just and fair, because there's some people I don't want to see ever released, okay, they're not good people, okay, they, they should be locked up, they will be a harm to others, and I do not want them harming other people, I want a just judge, and don't we want a just judge, okay, Somebody did something to one of my family members. I would want justice on their behalf, okay? And God, we know, is just. So, Israel, even with Israel, guys, um, them being chosen, it was only, and you guys need to grasp this, Israel being chosen was only because of God's grace and mercy. That was it. That's what we see in Scripture, 
Nothing more, nothing less. You guys, remember recently we looked at Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on you nor chose you, Israel, because you were more than the number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep an oath which he swore to your fathers, okay? That was his deal. That was his choosing. It's nothing that Israel did. So as we consider verses 17 and 18 here, let's consider the opposite of showing mercy to the sinner really is the hardening of the heart of a sinner. Wouldn't that be the opposite according to what we just read here? Yes, okay? So both are God's sovereign will, we're told, in verse 18. And again, grace doesn't come, you know, because something is owed. We can't earn more grace from God. Grace is a free gift. You can't earn a gift. It's freely given. So God's grace is a gift. It has to be or it's not grace any longer. So did God force Pharaoh and unbelievers to sin? No, okay? They had the free will to do it, okay? I know this whole total depravity talk that we see in the Calvinist camp, okay, it's part of their tulip, their five beliefs that they have that come around that doctrine, that came out of the Reformation. You guys can go back to the early church fathers. They went to bat for free will. That's what's taught, and that's what we see in Scripture. Man has a choice. You can rebel against God, or you can seek God. And do you guys know that if you choose to seek God, you will find him? That's a promise in the Bible. How awesome is that? So when you are sharing the gospel with somebody and you're praying for someone and the Spirit's leading you to do that, why? Because it's the heart of our God. He desires none to perish. And we really believe as we're sharing with someone, like, hey, these seeds that are being planted, (laughs) they might run with these. They may begin to seek the Lord to consider the claims of Christ. They may humble themselves and bow their knee before their maker and be saved. We believe that. So when it comes to Pharaoh, okay, and I want you guys to know that neither here, guys, nor anywhere else is God said to have hardened anyone before they first hardened themselves. I'm still looking for that in Scripture. I have not found it. Okay? We do see that God did harden Pharaoh's heart. Okay? Exodus 9, verse 12, 10, 1, 20, 27, chapter 11, verse 10, 14, 8. And he even prophesied that he would harden his heart in Exodus 4, 21 and 7, 3. But we also read, guys, Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. He chose to say no to God. Exodus 7, 13, 14, 22, chapter 8, verse 15, 19, 32, chapter 9, 7, 34, 35, and chapter 13, verse 15. 20 times we read of Pharaoh's heart getting hardened. 10 times Pharaoh chose to say, no, I'm hardening my heart to you, God. I'm rejecting you. And then we read of 10 times God saying, all right, that's your choice. Here's your hard heart. I've never seen anywhere in Scripture where God just does the hardening first. 
we make the choice. We sin, we rebel. So God determined to pardon sinful Israel with undeserved grace, as we see here in verses 15 and 16. And God determined to punish sinful Pharaoh with deserved judgment that we see in verse 17 and 18. So that takes us to verse 19. Why does God still blame us? Okay, he's just doing what he wants to do, right? So this doesn't get sinners off the hook, guys. As far as accountability goes, it is their sin. You guys understand that? You chose to sin. I chose to sin. Okay? So the consequences really are of unbelief. And that's the one unforgivable sin, isn't it, guys? When we harden our hearts and we say no to the Holy Spirit because we know the Holy Spirit today is at work convicting the whole world, we're told, of sin. Okay? He's convicting us. Showing truth. So I don't care about the people who are over there, you know, so far gone, you know, no missionaries. Well, what about them? You guys ever hear that argument from people? Well, how are they going to hear? God, first of all, we don't want to put in a box. (laughs) Secondly, his spirit is at work convicting all people. Okay. And thirdly, I don't know how many testimonies I've heard over the years, over and over again, of God meeting with people in certain parts of the world where the name of Jesus is not even preached. People are getting saved, whether by angelic you know, visitations or radical circumstances, missionaries being sent into these jungles, whatever. God is faithful. If anybody humbles himself and seeks him, they will find him. So, the answer to this is found in verse 20 and 21. I want to read it again. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will a thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me this, or like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Well, wait, Paul, that's a cop-out. What? <laughs> No, it's not, guys. I want you guys to catch the answer here is a reminder that God is working according to his own perfect counsel and wisdom, even though we don't understand it. How many of you guys claim to get it and understand it all? I don't, okay? The longer I walk with the Lord, the more questions I have. I'll be honest with you guys. I've taught over 3,000 sermons in my lifetime. I feel like I'm scratching the surface when it comes to God's word. The more I dig in, the more questions I have. But also, gets me more excited. Because I know one day, when I'm finally, we are going to be, okay, like he is. Okay, we read 1 John 3, okay? When we finally see him face to face. And we're going to be able to see, and like, whoa, (laughs) this is what you've been up to? This is how you've been working it all out? It couldn't have been any better. You couldn't have been more merciful. You couldn't have been more gracious. You are altogether glorious. Because there's a lot of question marks I have right now. Why'd this happen? Why'd that go down that way? Why'd they pass? Why, why, why? Also, guys, don't confuse God's mystery with capriciousness. To be capricious is tending to make a sudden or an unpredictable change. God It's not like that. We don't have to wonder, like, where's God going to be today? Is he still loving me today? 
Are his promises still good today? No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. So, a reminder, okay, and I think we need to remember this, guys. God is good, and he can only do good. That's the God of the Bible, okay? He is just, he's holy, he is all wise. That is the God of the Bible. This is the God we believe in. And we also know that he's rich in mercy. Have you guys read any of those scriptures? Aren't you guys glad they're there? I sure am. Lastly, guys, God doesn't make anyone sin. People sin because they want to. Hopefully your question will change from how can a loving God send people to hell to how can God love anybody? (laughs) Right? Think about it. How can a holy, just God look upon sin? (laughs) Sin is separated from God because he is holy. And that's why when we consider Christ and what he did on that cross at Calvary 2,000 years ago. What a demonstration of love. What a demonstration of grace. What mercy our God has for us, guys. Rich in mercy. How could he? Wow, what an act of love for humanity, sinful humanity to be able to enjoy eternal life. What a God. So the hypothetical question, what if, look at verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath, to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared before for glory? So what if God wants to show you his wrath, his power, his long-suffering, and especially his glory? What if God has every right? And that brings us to another great example that we find in Hosea. This is our fourth example in this chapter. Look at verse 25 and 26 with me. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, And her beloved, who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So this is Old Testament, guys. This Old Testament prophet predicted that God would, with no limit, okay, give his grace to Israel but would save repenting Gentiles, okay? That's what he's speaking. Hosea called these Gentiles the sons of the living God, not the Jewish people, okay? We see that also in Hosea 2.23 and chapter 1, verse 10. So here Paul seems to shift his focus here from questioning God's character really to celebrating his mercy, Are you guys getting the point, the context here? Where is he going? Our God is abundant in mercy. This is the point. So God has plucked all believers, both Jews and Gentiles, off the road of certain judgment, and he's lavished upon them this rich mercy. 
So Gentiles are included in God's redemptive plan, which brings us now to the prophet Isaiah. And we see another example here in verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and he will cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So only a remnant of the Jewish people will be preserved. Verse 27 and 28 here, you guys think of all the millions of Israelites that are in the world or that have been. Only a small remnant have been saved. Okay? Does a Jew still need a Savior, a Messiah? Absolutely. Just like the rest of the world. Okay? We need God. So verse 29 then, even this remnant, okay, would perish apart from the grace of God. It's still coming back to him in his grace, okay? I'd love to talk about remnant at length. A lot of people think we're done here in the West, in America, because we've turned our back on God. Do you guys know that there's still a remnant here? You guys know that in the last couple of years, with everything shaking out, okay, I think God's doing a refining in his church. Okay, people are getting saved. There is a remnant there. And God's going to use that remnant. A lot of people are talking, hey, we're living in the last days. All this stuff's going to happen. There's a lot of crazy that the Bible talks about happening. But I truly believe that's going to happen because right now we are a preserving grace and salt. God is using this small remnant, okay, to be salt and light right now. (laughs) But if the rapture happens and we're taken out, What's going to preserve? Where's the light going to be? Okay, we're taken out. And a lot of the stuff that people are fearful of happening and coming down the pike, it's going to happen. But I really believe all that stuff will happen after we're out of here. Anyways, I totally got sidetracked. The point is, there's a remnant today still in the land here and in Israel, and there's a remnant all over the world. You guys know the gospel has gone to almost every people group in the world. Okay, we're literally, in our lifetimes, if the Lord doesn't return, the gospel will go to all peoples. That promise was made by Jesus, Matthew 24, 2,000 years ago. It's in our lifetime that it's actually happening, guys. Pretty exciting time to be alive. Okay? And there are God's people all over the place. And I'm believing that God is good and he is big. Some have told me we are past redemption There can be no more revival ever here in the United States. We're too far gone. Stop putting my God in a box. Open your Bible and read. Our God is a big God, and if he chose to move in a radical way in his mercy, he's going to do it, guys. So why not get on our knees and actually pray for revival? Why not get on our knees and ask the Lord, what is our part? What are you asking me, Lord, to do? How can I bear fruit, much fruit for your glory for your kingdom how can we as a church family here at freedom be about god's business his kingdom business what is he wanting for us 
to do together. Because we've got a big God who's still on the move. People are getting saved today, guys. That's the truth. The gospel's not being preached just here. <laughs> Tens, thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches today are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful. God is not done. So don't give up on him. Instead, acknowledge what he's up to. Do you have eyes to see? Can you discern what the spirit of the living God's up to? Because it hasn't changed since Jesus left. He's in the business of saving people. It's not too late. And he's going to be doing that. That's what he's going to do. He's even going to come back one day and set everything right. I can't wait for that. Anyways, why do you guys keep getting off, sidetracked? Gee whiz. Okay. Um, how about we just do a quick, you guys want to do a quick course on logic? Help us fill this in. It might help. I like visuals. How many of you guys like visuals? Good. Okay. Uh, consider with me. Look at the circle of theism with me for a second. Everything inside of this circle would constitute, okay, or have affiliation with a or gods, okay? Everything outside of the circle. You guys familiar with atheism? A, no, or non, so no God. We know atheists out there. They don't believe God, but they're very angry at God. I don't get it. Anyway, so when someone doesn't believe in any God or gods, they are outside the circle of theism. Does this make sense? Okay, now track with me. In the circle, circle now of justice. We know God is just, okay? Um, everything inside the church circle here is justice or right, righteousness. Everything outside of the circle would be non-justice. So this includes everything outside of the circle of justice. I didn't say injustice, though. Okay? Is injustice inside the circle or outside the circle? Outside the circle, right? Is injustice a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. <laughs> it is evil. Is mercy a bad thing? No. Is mercy inside the circle of justice? No, it's not. It is outside the circle of justice. Mercy is non-justice, isn't it? Now keep tracking with me. We want to be logical. So there are two things that are outside the circle of justice. Injustice, which is evil, and mercy, which is good. So questions we must ask. Is there injustice in God? No. Is there unrighteousness in God? No. Is there iniquity in God? No. Is there non-justice in God? Yes. And thank God that there is mercy and grace in the circle, okay? Not in the circle of justice. Because, man... <laughs> there's a lot of injustice in the world that can be met with the love, the grace, the mercy of our God. And that's why verse 15, guys, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. Does this verse make a little more sense? A little more logical? Do you guys get the big picture here of how it works? This is what Paul is laying down and trying to communicate to us. You guys even know that within our own 
uh, justice system. A president can exercise this thing called an executive clemency, okay? It shows the mercy on one prisoner. Is he obligated to pardon everybody? No. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Let me tell you what. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned. We're all guilty. Okay. And we can find mercy from God, even in our rebellion. So, Jacob got grace. Esau got not injustice. God withheld his mercy to Esau, which Esau had no claim to. Jacob got mercy, Esau got justice. So the elect gets mercy, the non-elect get justice. No one gets injustice. That is the point. That's what we need to grasp biblically. Are you guys seeing this or am I making this up? These are the examples Paul is laying down for us to understand. So many people want to trip over this chapter, over these doctrines. I think God's pretty straightforward for us. We need to receive the context, the big picture here. Okay? The elect get mercy. The non-elect get justice. No one gets injustice. Now, I want to for a second insert the doctrine of currency. Okay, what's currency? Something that's running together. Can events be fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well? That is the question I want to pose before us this morning. Can they both be working together fully? How many of you guys know what a botanist is? Scientist, right? They can detail, they study plants, growth. Um, they can tell you why grass will grow, you know, such as the sun, the different moisture that's needed, temperature, the nutrients, and the list can go on. Now, say I run down to Ace, and I buy me some grass seed, and I go home, and I work up the soil, and prepare it well and I put the nutrients that are needed and I plant those seeds and you know take care of all the bugs and I water it and the sun comes out you know and then I go look what I grew look what I grew wait a minute did I really was it me that really me no okay but I want us to consider yet the scriptures because the word of God tells us God causes grass, veggies, fruit to grow, right? Psalm 104, verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, the vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring food from the earth. So it seems to reason that if we know the natural cause of something in the world, then God did not cause it. But rather, guys, the passages here affirm that such events are entirely caused by God, yet we know that in another sense they are entirely caused by factors in creation as well. There's a working together. It is not as though the event was partially caused by God and partially by factors of the created world. Rather, guys, if it rains, we should thank God, right? If the crop produces, we should thank God. The doctrine of concurrence affirms God directs 
and he works through the distinctive properties of each created thing so that these things themselves bring about a result that we can see. So in this way, guys, it is possible in one sense, okay, that events are fully 100% caused by God and fully 100% caused by, cre- by the creation itself. So however divine or creaturely causes, they work different ways. And I think this is where people get the disconnect. Because divine cause are events that are working, okay, invisible. We see the attributes. <laughs> we know God's there behind the scenes, directing the cause. Therefore, could be called the primary cause in plans and initiates everything that happens. But the created thing brings about the actions in ways that consist with the creation's own properties. So what that can often describe is us or by professional scientists who carefully observe these processes that creaturely factors and properties can be therefore called secondary causes of everything that happens even though they are the causes that are evident by our observation. So it's really good to have a grasp and an understanding that, yeah, God is sovereign. (laughs) We have our responsibilities, and there is definitely a working together. In the grand conclusion of all of this, I'm glad you guys asked, because the last couple of verses, let's take a look at verse 30. We see the conclusions concerning sovereign selection here. Verse 30, what shall we say then? Right? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay In Zion, a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. As I mentioned earlier, guys, the Jews did not, you know, these legitimate claims on being, you know, the children of God, God's special people, this national heritage. Guys, it was all about faith. It's always been about faith, about belief. Okay, just because you are a Jew outwardly <laughs> doesn't mean that you have God in you. It's the same thing for you and I. Just because we give lip service to faith doesn't mean we have Christ in us. Okay, we can play the game. We can look like a good Christian. Works, doing this or that doesn't save anybody. Faith in God is what saves you. So the Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness, they attained it by faith. The Jews who did pursue righteousness based upon the law, what'd they do? They fell short of it. So Israel's refusal to believe in Jesus Christ was the reason for their rejection. He was their stumbling block over whom they had tripped and fallen. Righteousness comes by faith and faith alone. We read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to those who are children forever, 
that they may do all the words of the law. So this chapter set before us this morning, it's not an interruption. It shouldn't be like, why is this here? Well, let's just skip this because it's all about Israel anyways. No. These are examples that you and I as believers need to grasp, get, understand. Because the illustration, Romans 8.30, guys, whomever is predestined, these is also called, whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he's also glorified. So here's what we need to know when it comes to predestination. It tells us that he loved us, he loves us, and he's going to keep on loving us. I get pretty excited about that. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. So there are really only two options, guys. You put your faith in him or you're going to keep stubbing your toes on the rock of ages. One or the other. So will you believe on Jesus Christ or not? That's the bottom line. And that's what we get to share with the world. This good news. God loves you. There's this beautiful, amazing grace, this gift, forgiveness of sins, and you get to be with God forever, eternal life, because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross and then rising from the dead. This is the promise he's given to us, to all who believe. Will you have faith? No, I'm good. I got it. How many people say that? I do this. I do that. I'll be okay. No, you're not. doesn't matter how great you are. You still need a Savior. Have you put your faith in Jesus? And he is a stumbling block to so many people today. That's why Jesus is being canceled. People are easily offended. But let me tell you what, guys. This is a glorious truth. I don't think he gets much better than this. At least I haven't found anything better than this. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, guys, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So, Father, we are thankful for your sovereignty. We are thankful that you are on the throne and in control. The things that have been shaken out or will shake out, it's not tripping you out. Lord, you see it all together and in it, your plans, um, your will is being accomplished, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you so loved us, God, that you gave all of yourself on that tree 2,000 years ago. Thank you for how you love. Thank you that we get to be a part of this uh, kingdom business, Lord, the family business, that we get to go and share uh, the hope of you with this world. And I do pray for those who struggle over this debate, Lord, of our free will and what we need to be doing and uh, what you have done or what you do, Lord, help us just to rest in the balance of your scripture. Just saying, yeah, you got it. And at the same time, knowing that you're asking of us, Lord, and that we would be obedient and faithful, Lord, to what you're asking. And most of all, we are so grateful for the working of your Holy Spirit, God. Help us, Lord, to walk closely to you, to be in step to go and bear much fruit for your glory. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.